Well, welcome all. I'm Pastor Andy. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor is away. A number of our uh, leaders are away, or maybe not feeling so good today. And uh, glad that you're all here and, and welcoming. Um, you're welcome here, I should say. Um, when I usually preach, I would ask people to stand up as I read some scripture. I'm not going to ask you to stand up again now for the sake of, of uh, time. <laughs> crotch over there, um, <laughs> um, but the reason, uh, one reason I'm, do, I'm going ahead with this, with you all sitting down, is that, uh, that I'm going to read uh, about uh, 24, 25 verses in Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1, and uh, you can find that in your Bible, or maybe one that's right there in the seats around you. Acts chapter 12 uh, is where I will start, and then we'll get on running from there. On the uh, bulletin you have, it says, uh, God Always Wins is the title. I actually retitled it. I just didn't let anybody else know that. So it says, uh, my title is actually God Wins, and so does his church. And that's Acts 12, 1 to 25. Because of the uh, entertaining aspect of of the middle portion of this chapter, um, we'll come back to that uh, right away. But let's read, let me read this to you, uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get it up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel said. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing uh, was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, oh, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand to them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers, 
and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the, uh, the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Because of the entertaining aspect of the, the middle portion of this chapter, I was just reading verses 12 to 16, we perhaps overlooked that a very serious subject that's portrayed throughout this entire story. And that subject is that we live on a beautiful physical planet, but at the same time we live in a spiritually dark world. On planet Earth, evil abounds. Wickedness is, is ever-present and always on the move, rising up here and there, extending its reach in many places and in many ways, sometimes touching a few, at other times going after many, sometimes a big crowd, a region, a people group, nations, hundreds of millions of people perhaps. Here in Acts 12, we read of an example of evil in the early days of the church of Jesus Christ. A king, Herod Agrippa I, supported by the vast and powerful Roman Empire, ruled over the lands of southern Syria and Galilee and Perea and Judea in the Middle Middle East. Lands that once uh, constituted or were connected to the nation of Israel itself. Herod was vain. He was self-centered, ruthless, cruel, manipulative, and a murderer. He was a corrupt politician of the worst sort. He played political games for his own advancement and enrichment, and he cared not one bit if his games uh, hurt others. In Judea, as elsewhere, he found other lesser leaders and larger constituencies who would, for their own advancement, play the political games with him. That was what was behind a new round of uh, persecution against followers of of Jesus Christ in Judea at a time when the good news of Jesus was spreading further and more and more people were becoming Christians. Fellowships of believers were growing at that time and another great leading church was rising up in the city of Antioch and the worldwide outreach of the church was about to launch. But at that time, at that time, Herod ordered the arrest of a number of Christians and mistreated them. And then he went a step further and had the Apostle James arrested and put to death by the sword, which is to say he had James cruelly beheaded publicly. That was a devastating loss to the church. James was one of the original 12 disciples, those of whom Jesus had singled out for advanced training and Christian leadership. Along with John, he was one of the sons of thunder, a nickname bestowed on them by Jesus, because of their energy, their passion, their boldness, their ability to make good things happen. The death of James meant a huge loss for the church. 
but it emboldened the enemies of the Christians. It discouraged the followers of Christ and potentially slowed the advance of the gospel. For Herod, he thought that went very, very well. He pleased the haters of Christians and uh, gained additional support for himself. So then he proceeded to arrest Peter, the new leader of the church, with the intent to put on a show trial, to falsely convict Peter of a wrongdoing and have him beheaded as well. For Herod, his plan was, was all set. He was satisfied. It was going to be happened. Nothing was going to stop it. And everyone could expect more of the same after Peter's demise. What is such evil, uh, why does such evil as that happen? Well, I could say for two, uh, for two reasons at least. Maybe three. One would be this, because the human race is tainted with sin. H.L. Mencken, who was not known to be a great Christian actually said, though, it is a sin to believe evil of others, but it's seldom a mistake. (coughs) J.K. Chesterton said that he couldn't understand why anyone would deny original sin since it was the only doctrine that could be proved by reading the daily news. Mark Twain said man was made at the end of the week when God was tired. Cute saying, but Twain uh, was blaming God, not humans, for for, uh, depravity. Twain was wrong about all of that. The truth is that we all have a sin nature, and in our natural state, we have a propensity to sin. We have a dullness to spiritual and moral truth and a willingness to justify our wrong thoughts and beliefs and actions. We easily harden our conscience so that we lose our sense of right and wrong, and all of that makes us very susceptible to lies and persuasions that draw us to evil. Also, evil arises because of the influence of spiritual instigators of evil. There's a spiritual realm as well as a physical realm. Spiritual beings dwell in the spiritual realm. They are of an angelic race created by God. Those who serve God are called angels. Those who have rebelled against God are called, in Scripture, demons. Together they are, the Scripture says, the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Together they are, are, the, uh, are the, those forces. They are constantly at work. They blind the minds of the unbelieving. They are masters of lies and deception that turn people away from God and from what is good. They both tempt humans and they discourage humans so as to bring evil upon people and to encourage people to do evil. Putting this uh, all together, we, uh, we understand the gravity of our sin. We are a human race tainted and corrupted by sin. There's a passionate army of instigators constantly engaged in the various uh, in, uh, activities against the human race. That's why trouble abounds on planet Earth and why it will abound until the end of this age and why Christ's followers, the righteous, the church, will be targeted or and are under attack always. Just as happened in the days of the early church. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of course, there will be levels of that. But, again, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil will be with us, sometimes more intensely and prevalently, uh, prevalently, 
can't say that prevalently, at certain times and certain places, but more prevalently and more intensely as the end of the age comes closer. The scripture tells us that. Because at that time, rejection of God and lawlessness will increase, and the forces of evil will pull out all the stops as the end of the age um, nears to us. To expect otherwise, the Bible tells us, is to be foolish and easily overtaken. On January 20, 1942, 14 men, all officials in the Nazi government gathered in what history remembers as the Wannsee Conference. These men completed the Holocaust, Holocaust strategy and planned for the elimination of the Jews from, from Europe. Not only did they agree, uh, agree on the murder of Jews, they agreed that their, their mouths would be mined for gold, their hair as a textile for clothing, their fat as a source of soap, and their bones raw mer- mer- materials for their fertilizers. Of these 14 monsters, eight had doctoral degrees. In a note left, uh, at, a, at one place, I will pass this by generally. I've seen what no one should witness. Learned engineers who built gas chambers, children killed by highly educated physicians and nurses. He appealed to his own teachers to help the students to become better people. Evil will be with us, sometimes more intensely, sometimes not. But more prevalently and more intensely as the end of the age closes. Because at that time, the rejection of God and lawlessness will increase. And the forces of evil will pull out all those stops of the, as the end of the age nears. To expect otherwise, that the Bible tells us to be foolish, to be naive. How's it for you, morning? Is this, this is encouraging to you? Not much, huh? Aren't you glad you came to here today? Well, we actually should be thankful to be here today in order to, to face reality, because we are better off knowing and thinking about the truth than not knowing it. And because there's good news, there's hope. As is emphasized here in this chapter, there is hope. For as anyone from a Bible scholar to a first-time Bible reader can see, at the very beginning of this historical account, James is dead. Peter's in prison, about to be executed. Some members of the church have already been attacked. Others are in danger. Herod is triumphant. The church is powerless, possessing none of the weapons, the skills, the abilities of the world to have in order to fight back. But at the end of this account, time-wise, not a very long time after the events described at that beginning I just told you, Herod actually not only left Jerusalem frustrated and embarrassed, he was dead. The attacks he had orchestrated had ceased. Peter was alive and free. Additionally, the the church members were encouraged and built up in faith. The proclamation of the gospel was increased. With the result that many people, many more people had become Christ followers. There was a complete turnaround that came about. And how did it happen? It happened in only one way. That God made it happen. That God made it happen. And in this picture of what has happened to the church throughout its history and what will continue to happen today and in the future, uh, we'll, be, we'll be relying on God because the church, us, belongs to God. 
The church is beloved by God. And God is with the church. And God is for the church. And he works through his church to accomplish his plans and his purposes. We get to experience that. The church will never be defeated. The church will remain and it will advance. Yes, the church has experienced setbacks through its history. But it has still moved forward in its life and its mission. Expanding, growing, entering new territory, gaining new members. But it's also continually met opposition from the evil and the ungodly. There are many people who don't even understand Christianity. We know to take that into account. But we also understand that God works in many different ways. I have a nephew and uh, I guess a niece and, and a, was that, a niece-in-law or something? My nephew and niece uh, uh, have been working in the Middle East. He's a, he's a physician. He's a doctor. The two of them have been uh, ministering in the, in the Middle East. I won't name the country. They've been uh, uh, as missionaries, medical missionaries, for a long time. They came home just recently for a, a, little, a little time off, a little rest. Went back over, and at the door they said, you're not welcome in here. They're, we're not welcome here anymore. And so the ministry went right away there that they, they had. The church has experienced setbacks, but it still moves forward. It's still moving forward now, but it's continually met with opposition from the evil and the ungodly. Oftentimes that has resulted in reversals, but the overall picture has been along lines of the church for three steps forward, maybe two steps back, but then maybe three or four more steps forward. When the church has been stomped down in one place, it has risen again. When evil gains ground in one area, God may allow it for its time, but counters it, counters it, and in the end brings it down and often raises up good to dominate in its place. Some years ago, you remember, there was, someone planted some bombs at the uh, Boston Marathon. And uh, they weren't quite a, using uh, the cameras as they, as they do even today. But, uh, but there were some cameras that, that caught all of the damage uh, on, on film. Uh, there was a, 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 a lucky break there that someone noticed. But what we have to remember is that God is always noticing. God is always on watch. He sees everything. All that goes on in the world and all that goes on in our life. And then that's the encouraging part we can begin with this today. That God is in control and God is on watch and God stands against evil and he deploys his forces both to help his people and to counter evil. Did you catch that here? Peter was enabled to escape from prison by the help of an angel. It says there in verse Seven And Herod was struck down by an angel. Do we all know that angels are are, uh, real? Do you know what they are? Do we know what they do? They are not humans that have died and gone to heaven and have been given wings. They are members of an angelic race, a race of spiritual beings created by God who are are special servants of God. They, They served God in heaven, the scripture tells us. And we presume wherever else in the universe that God wants them to serve, that's where they serve. <clears throat> but we know for sure that they serve God here on earth, carrying out missions from him here, and they are especially appointed to be helpers to the people of God. We likely never see them or know their presence, but that they are with us. 
Hebrews 1.14 says they are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. We're given indications in Scripture that they battle behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. <clears throat> but they also enter our physical realm, sometimes appearing in human form, as apparently was the case in the escape of Peter from prison. <clears throat> when that happens, they do their mission quickly, and they, they don't seem to linger on as in uh, 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 trying to escape. But Scripture indicates that <coughs> excuse me, usually <coughs> we don't even know of their presence with us. <clears throat> or what they're doing for God and for us. We entertain angels without knowing it, <clears throat> Hebrews 13.2 says. There's also a great passage in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 where Elisha, the prophet Elisha, was under attack by Arameans, surrounded, uh, doomed. But then an army of angels were seen. And the angels said, don't be afraid. Isn't it amazing and heartening to us? Forces of God for good under God's direction are serving on earth and among us to ensure that God's plans and God's will prevails and that his people will also prevail ultimately, if not now, then sooner, later. That should be great encouragement to us and embolden us to live and serve God. To not become discouraged and self-centered and overly fearful and defeated. So when we say, well, why don't angels just stop all evil? Why were Christians allowed to be mistreated? Why did James die? Why did Peter not die? Those are questions we can't really answer now. But we do know all of the answers to this. We just know that it is the sovereign will of God that such happenings occur. We're not able to understand it, but we know his sovereign will is always best for all, no matter what he allows. Because we know of God's power, his wisdom, his righteous character. We know that he is always good, that he is proper and best, uh, has our best uh, for us. We can trust him. We can entirely trust him. I don't, I'm not sure if the uh, Tower of Terror is still up at uh, Disneyland, but some of you have been there. I, I think it's gone by now. Yes, we're getting, yes, some of you have been there already. The Tower of Terror was a big, tall tower. It looked like a big building. On the inside, uh, it had where you, the people would go in and sit in the seats. And then uh, while you're sitting there thinking everything's fine, it would pull the rug out in front of you and you drop really fast. It's kind of scary, but kind of fun. <laughs> but at the Tower of Terror outside, there's a little sign that says, It's easy enough to be pleasant when life comes along like a song. But the man worthwhile is the man who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. You know, as Christians, we have the opportunity to follow that, to be pleasant when life hums along, to know that we can smile when everything goes dead wrong, because we have this relationship with Jesus Christ. C.H. Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, I can always trace his heart. There's, one, there's yet one other encouragement that we should take away from this chapter and this portion of this church's history, and that is that actually our prayers make a difference. In this short uh, uh, portion of Scripture that we've took, uh, taken on here, 
Our prayers make a difference. The prayers of God's people are effective in, in the stand against evil. In the book of James, chapter 5, reference is made to Elijah, a prophet in Old Testament times who prayed while in a confrontation with an evil being and the inherent of an evil religion and how God answered his prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much is the takeaway from that incident. James 5.16 says, as in the NIV puts it, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And here in Acts 12, we see another example of the effectiveness of prayer. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Peter, we know, was freed from the prison. He saved from execution. Herod's attacks were stopped, and Herod himself brought down by the direct intervention of God. But God intervened in response to the prayers of the church, the followers of Christ. As the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson put it, the angel fetched Peter out of the prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. 1 Peter 3.2 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Isn't that encouragement that we can count on that? Psalm 50.15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. As we see in this chapter, prayer is the power which, is, which the uh, powerless possess. It's the one weapon which God gives to his people to wield against evil. But it's a mighty weapon. God only needs one at any time. It is the victory resource of the church of Jesus Christ. Out of love and generosity, God has arranged for his people to participate in his great works. And the prime way that we're able to participate is by prayer. With prayer, we have the privilege of influencing family history congregational history, local history, world history, someone has said. Think about that. We become active participants in God's stands against evil and his support of good. We become players in the changing of events and circumstances, and we are allowed to have a hand in great victories. It's incredible, isn't it? And sometimes mind-boggling, even to the point of our becoming distracted from prayer. To avoid that, just go back to the basic knowledge. In the words of H.A. Ironside, he said, we learn from the Word, the Bible, that God has chosen to do in answer to prayer what He might not do apart from prayer. He gives answer to prayer some things He will not give apart from it. Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. We may not know all the details of prayer and God's will and human freedom, but we know this, it works. We have plenty of evidence. Our prayers are more important. They're more impactful than we believe them to be and think them to be. So what then? Well, so be encouraged and pray. Continue to pray. Pray broadly for many things. Pray specifically in times of crisis and when dealing with evil. A.C. Dixon wrote, said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations do. When we depend on education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. 
But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. It's also been rightly said that when men work, men work, but when men pray, God works. Pray broadly for many things. What should we do? What should we do with this? Well, we should pray today for the matters of good and evil that are around about us. We should pray for the church. We should pray for this church and others. We should pray fervently and earnestly from our heart, passionately for the things that really matter. Pray continually. Pray with agony, the scripture says. Pray when your faith is weak, as the church was praying for Peter. Their response when Peter came knocking on the door demonstrated that but give those folks who, uh, who were leaving Peter outside the door when he was trying to get in the door. At least they give them some credit for having mustard seed size for faith to keep praying and believing that God was going to do something. Are we there or are we not? God honored that at that time. Pray for big answers is what we learned. For what is humanly impossible to come about, such as Peter's escape, was in possible. Pray with others, other believers. Pray separately, each praying about the same matters, but also pray together as the church did for Peter. Pastor Ray Stedman once wrote, he said, there is a mighty mysterious element about prayer, an element which as God's people gather together and open their hearts and share their feelings with God, somehow creates an atmosphere for God to work in sudden Remarkable ways. We get that just by coming together in prayer. John Piper wrote this some time ago. Maybe some of you have heard it. But the title of it is, We Cannot Know What Prayer Is For Until We Know That Life Is War. Life is war, he says. That's not all it is. But it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. A couple of paragraphs, uh, paragraphs, paragraphs later. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is though the field commander Jesus called in the troops gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, by the way, handed out to each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. And if you straight uh, stay true to his mission and seek victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitters to give technical advice and to send, I love this, and to send air cover when you need it. Phillips Brooks said, pray the largest prayers. 
How many of us do that? We We don't go for the large ones much, do we? Or do we? Pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger, Brooke said. But it doesn't have to be large. Are you as old as me? You remember the, the family circus cartoon in the newspaper? Yeah. There's one, I, I can't um, put it up on the screen for you, but I can describe it to you. There's the littlest boy up on his bed, on his knees, holding his hands, and his sister saying to him, it's okay to pray for something little, Jeffy. Everything's little to God. On one of D.L. Moody's uh, trips, D.L. Moody was a great evangelist 100 years ago, I suppose. On one of D.L. Moody's trips across the Atlantic, a fire broke out in the hold of the ship. Moody and a friend joined the crew and others volunteered uh, passing buckets of water to be thrown on the fire. The friend said to Moody, Mr. Moody, let's go to the other end of the ship and pray. Sounds like a good thing, right? But the common sense evangelist replied, no, sir. We stand right here in house buckets and pray all the time. All the time. Isn't that how we should be praying? It's not just praying or working. It's praying and working and working and praying. Praying for big answers, for what is humanly impossible to come about. Such as Peter's escape was impossible. And pray with other believers. Separately, each praying about the same manners, but pray together as the church did. Grace Edmonds said that, I repeat it again, as I have a couple of times, there is a mighty mystery mysterious element about prayer, an element which is God's people gather together and open their hearts and share their feelings with God somehow creates an atmosphere for God to work in sudden, remarkable ways. Should that not be how we're living and praying? Well, this is just a little slice of things, of course, but maybe it wakes us up a little bit it makes us think about uh, that Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 25 and beyond. Maybe we, need, maybe we need to be paying a little more to those kinds of situations in our prayers and doing all we can according to the gifts that God has given to us, especially some of those very cool walkie-talkies that come from the Lord.